truly an incredible opportunity, an amazing privilege as a church to be able to partner with people who are going all over the world. We've, as a church, have missionaries all over the world, and uh, some of whom are in places uh, where there is tremendous conflict or tremendous threats of persecution. And kind of in a similar vein, many of you have asked me, as you know that we had a trip planned to Israel, Greece, and Rome. Many of you have asked kind of what's the status of that trip, and I think it's needless to say that we decided to postpone the trip to Israel. Because if you've been keeping up with the headlines, the more and more news comes out, the more and more concerning things are, the more and more devastating the situation on the ground is. And currently, truly, all eyes are on Israel right now. Uh, Israel has fought back. They've now surrounded the Gaza Strip. And all eyes around the world are watching to see what Israel is going to do. The United States has increased its presence in the area. Iran is threatening. Russia and China, there's all kinds of speculations about what they're going to do. There's all kinds of questions about what's going on in the Middle East, what's going on in around the area of Israel specifically. And in the last few weeks since the attack on October the 7th, a number of preachers have come out and addressed their view of what's going on. Some I agree with, some I don't agree with. Others I agree with, but I wish they would nuance it a little differently. And so, Today, we're going to pause our series in the Gospel of Mark, and I want to talk a little more specifically about what's going on in the Middle East, perhaps address some of the things you've heard online or read in articles about why Christians, especially evangelicals, tend to support Israel and kind of hopefully make sense of some of the confusion. So if you want to grab your Bible... Grab your outline as well. It's going to look a little different today. Typically here at Grace, we preach through a particular book of the Bible. We go chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Uh, But today is going to be a little bit different. We're going to be all over the place. Uh, We're going to talk about God's promises to Israel in the past, in the present, and in the future. But rather than looking at one particular passage, we're going to look at three. And so grab your Bible, turn to Genesis, turn to Romans, and turn to the book of Ezekiel. And you can use your table of contents if you need to. You probably don't turn to Ezekiel all that often. But we're going to take a look at God's past promises to Israel in Genesis. We're going to look at God's present promises to Israel in the book of Romans. And we're going to look at God's future promises to Israel in the book of Ezekiel. So again, grab your Bible, open up first to Genesis chapter 12. Let's take a look first at God's past promises to Israel. Genesis chapter 12, let me read for you verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, 
and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, Genesis chapter 12 is a foundational chapter in the Bible, especially in the book of Genesis. And here in Genesis chapter 12, we see the record of God's initial promises to Abram, later called Abraham. God calls Abraham out of a pagan land and directs him to a land that God will show him, the land we call Israel. And here in Genesis chapter 12, God makes very specific promises to Abram or Abraham. There's three major aspects of God's promises to Abraham that I want you to see here. Number one, there are promises given specifically to Abraham. Number two, there are promises given to Abraham's descendants. And number three, there are promises given to the world through Abraham. First, there are personal promises given to Abraham. Notice God says, I will bless you. I will make your name great. And certainly, God has been faithful to these promises to Abraham. God certainly blessed Abraham. He made Abraham's name great. In fact, the three major world religions, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, all ultimately come back to Abraham. Abraham's name has certainly been made great. But secondly, notice that there are also promises given to Abraham's descendants. And keep in mind that this promise was given while yet Abraham had no descendants. He was childless. But God says, and he gives promises to this childless man, he says, I will make you into a great nation. The Jewish people. And third, there are universal, worldwide promises that God says will come through Abraham. Notice he says to Abraham, you will be a blessing. All the peoples, all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. So we see personal promises. We see national promises. And we see worldwide promises. Another way you can look at these verses is God promises to Abraham and to his descendants three things. Land, seed or descendants, and blessing. Land, seed, and blessing. And really, the Old Testament is all about filling in the details and confirming these promises God made with Abraham. One of the major things I want you to understand as we look at number one on your outline that is that God is faithful to his promises. And specifically, if you flip over to Genesis chapter 15, what we see in Genesis chapter 15 is that these promises of God given to Abraham are then reiterated and codified in a unilateral, unconditional covenant that God makes with Abraham. Unilateral, meaning God alone is the one enacting this covenant. 
Unconditional, meaning there are no strings attached. But in Genesis 15, God makes a unilateral, unconditional covenant with Abraham that reiterates these promises in Genesis chapter 12. Flip over to chapter 15. Let's look at verses 18 through 21. Genesis 15, 18 says, On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, or Abraham, saying, To your descendants, I have given this land. From the river of Egypt, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenite, the Kenizzite, and the Cadmonite, and the Hittite, and the Perizzite, and the Rephraim, and the Amorite, and the Canaanite, and the Girgashite, and the Jebusite. Notice here in Genesis 15, in these verses, God's promise is specific to the land. This is, again, one of the many reasons why a lot of evangelicals today, when they look at what's going on today, affirm that the land belongs to the descendants of Abraham. And even a casual reading of the Old Testament, you will see that over and over and over again, God reminds the Jewish people of these promises of this covenant. Specifically regarding the land. Now you don't have to turn there, but I'd encourage you to jot down Deuteronomy 28 through 30. Deuteronomy 28 through 30 is another covenant that God enters into with the Jewish people, the descendants of Abraham. And in this particular covenant, he spells out the terms for how the Jewish people are to occupy the land. And to summarize Deuteronomy 28 through 30, it basically comes down to, God says to the descendants of Abraham, listen, if you obey me, you will stay in the land. But if you disobey me, I'm going to kick you out of the land. Now, this is a another key passage in our Old Testament that really unpacks why on various occasions the Jewish people get sent off into exile, but then God brings them back from exile. But what I want you to understand here, and this is important, there's a difference between Israel's ownership of the land, which was sworn in this covenant in Genesis 15, and their occupation of the land. Sometimes they're in, sometimes they're out, depending on their obedience to the Lord. There's a difference between Israel's ownership of the land, which is unconditional, and their occupation of the land, which is conditional. But make no mistake about it. God never goes on back on his word Throughout the Old Testament, he kicks them out of the land because of their disobedience, but then he brings them back to the land because of his faithfulness to his promises. And throughout the Old Testament, God reminds his people that he's given the land to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, and to their descendants forever and ever. So again, this is why many evangelicals, myself included, When we take Genesis 12 and 15 literally, seriously, that's why many evangelicals support Israel. 
But I do want to give one nuance that I think is important. Supporting the Jewish people, supporting Israel, does not necessarily mean we have to agree with everything their political leaders do, right? It doesn't mean we have to agree with every tactic that they use. But it also certainly means that we can't support organizations like Hamas or Hezbollah or nations like Iran whose stated purpose is to eliminate the Jewish people. We cannot support that. So there's a difference between supporting and agreeing with everything the geopolitical nation of Israel does on the one hand versus absolutely supporting the people and their existence on the other hand. Again, it goes back to Genesis 12. Those who bless you, I will bless. And those who curse you, I, God, will curse. Now, even if you look at this, by the way, from a completely secular perspective, take faith out of it altogether. You can make a very strong case that the modern nation of Israel has legitimately won that strip of land in the Middle East. 1967, in the Six-Day War, legitimately, Israel took control over the land, including the Sinai Peninsula, which they then gave back to Egypt, all the way to the Golan Heights in the north. But again, looking at this, not necessarily from a Christian perspective, what you need to understand is that from an Islamic perspective, in 636 A.D., Muslims conquered that little strip of land. And in Muslim theology, theology and ideology, once a, once a land has been conquered by and claimed for Allah, it is Allah's forever. So this helps explain why there is such conflict between Jews and Hamas and Hezbollah today, many of the Arab nations as well. Because in Islamic ideology, once 636 happened, this land belongs to Allah forever and ever. No matter what the UN says, no matter what Israel says, no matter what the US says, no matter what the Bible says. And this is why there's such conflict over this seemingly inconsequential strip of land. There's conflict because both sides claim divine rights to the land. But again, as a Christian who takes seriously Genesis 12, Genesis 15, and throughout the Old Testament, I affirm that the land belongs to the descendants of Abraham. And I affirm that although Israel is occupying the land today, I also have to affirm that they're not in a relationship with God. They're not in a relationship with God through Jesus. In fact, most Jews today are atheists. Which then leads me to number two on your outline. Let's flip to the book of Romans and talk about God's promises to Israel in the present. In the present day, when most Jews 
have rejected Jesus as their Messiah, still there are promises of God that are valid and in effect today. Flip over again to the book of Romans chapter 11. By the time we turn to Paul's letter in the book of Romans, again, Jesus has been rejected and crucified. The descendants of Abraham have by and large rejected their Messiah, Jesus. And this is the ultimate sin. The ultimate sin is the rejection of Jesus. And yet, what we see here in Romans chapter 11 is that even in the midst of this rejection, God is not finished with his people. He's not turned his back on his people and his promises to his people are still in effect today. Look at Romans chapter 11, verses 25 through 27. Paul says, For I do not want you, brethren, speaking to the Roman Christians, I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. And here's the mystery, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So here we see God's present promises to Israel. Here in Romans 11, Paul lays out a mystery. And a mystery is something previously unrevealed that is now being made known. And what is the mystery, Paul says? That a partial hardening, spiritual hardening, has happened to Israel, to the Jewish people. And what Paul wrote here in Romans 11 is still true today, that amongst the Jewish people there is a partial spiritual hardening towards Jesus. Notice Paul says this partial hardening will happen until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Currently, God's focus is on the Gentiles, taking for himself a people among the Gentiles. We call this the church age or the dispensation of the church. But during this time, the church age, the dispensation of the church, there is a hardening that's happened among the Jewish people. Just a few months ago, I came across some guy, a, an evangelist to the Jewish people on my YouTube feed. And the videos were of this guy, he would travel around Israel, around Tel Aviv, around Jerusalem, and he would pull aside different Jews who were living there, and he would say, listen, I have some quotes that I wanna read you Quotes from a rabbi who lived many, many, many years ago. And this evangelist would say, I want to read you these quotes, and I just want you to give me your reaction to them. And the evangelist began to read these quotes, and we as the audience recognize that these are sayings of Jesus, but of course, his audience members don't know this. So he's reading these sayings of Jesus to these Jews on the streets in Tel Aviv and in Jerusalem, and immediately these people fall in love with the words of this rabbi from ages ago. They're captivated by the words. 
And when the evangelist asks them, hey, what do you think? They, they say things like, man, I wish this guy were still alive today. I wish he were the one running our country. This guy's words are amazing. The evangelist then invites them to say, well, do you have any guesses on, on who said these words? And these different Jews start guessing these different famous rabbis and things. And, and, and at some point, the evangelist says, well, well, actually, these words were said by Jesus of Nazareth. And what's amazing is that in these videos, immediately, the conversation stops. Many of the people this evangelist was interviewing, they walk away and they even get angry. It was a clear illustration to me of what Paul is saying here in Romans chapter 11, that a partial hardening, a hardening has happened to the Jewish people. But I want you to notice in verse 25 two very important words. Partial until. The word partial tells us that not all Jews have rejected Jesus. There is a remnant who've put their faith in Jesus. And the word until tells us that there will be an end to this hardening and rejection, which will, I believe, occur at the second coming of Christ when Paul says here, all Israel, verse 26, all Israel will be saved. At the second coming of Christ, the event that ends the tribulation, all the Jews alive at that moment, I believe, will understand who Jesus is. They will look at him whom they have pierced, and they will trust in Jesus as their Messiah. But that's all future. Again, today, we're in the time of spiritual hardening. Notice verses 28 and 29. Paul says, from the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Notice what Paul says. Paul says two things that seem contradictory at first. He says, notice first that the Jews are still God's chosen people. From the standpoint of God's choice, they are still God's chosen people and they're beloved for the sake of the fathers because the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. When God said to Abraham in Genesis, I'm gonna bless your descendants, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable, Paul says. But notice as well, Paul says, from the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies. The word enemies, by the way, is a very, very strong word that describes extreme hostility. And again, by and large, most Jews today have an extreme hostility towards the gospel. But Paul says, listen, the Jews are enemies from the standpoint of the gospel, but he also says that they're beloved, they're chosen. And because God chose Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he loves the Jews and will carry through on his promises, which are irrevocable. Now, why would God do this? Notice verses 31 through, or 30 through 32. 
For just as you Gentiles were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their, the Jews' disobedience, so now these Jews also have been disobedient that because of the mercy shown to you Gentiles, they, the Jews, also may now be shown mercy. For God has shut up all in disobedience so that he may show mercy to all, to Jew and to Gentile. And then notice verse 33, Paul says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. Paul says, listen, this is amazing. We Gentiles who were once disobedient are now being shown mercy. And now the Jews who were once obedient are now disobedient so that one day they might be shown mercy. And then Paul throws his hands in the air and says, man, the wisdom of God is unsearchable. As we look at these verses here in Romans 11 in terms of relevance for today, as we take a step back and think, okay, what does this mean today in the present time? I think the most important thing I want you to see here in Romans 11 is that we need to treat our Jewish friends and our neighbors as lost because that's what they are if they don't know Jesus. This means we should place a high priority on Jewish evangelism, sharing the gospel of God's mercy with our Jewish friends and neighbors and coworkers, and pray that God would pour his mercy on those involved in this war. Jew, and I would also offer Palestinian. They're lost too. By the way, I do want to take a moment to clear up some confusion. Not all Palestinians are Hamas terrorists. In fact, there are Palestinians who are Christians. I know some personally. But all people, Jew, Gentile, Palestinian, even Hamas, their greatest need is Jesus. But as we connect Genesis 12 and 15 with Romans 11, one of the most important things that we can bless the descendants of Abraham Bless those who bless you. One of the best ways we can bless the descendants of Abraham is by introducing them to their Messiah, their Savior. Now, right after the attack happened on October the 7th, one of the things that I did is I pulled out an Israeli flag that I purchased years ago and I hung it in the front window of the house. We live in a neighborhood that has a high, high concentration of Jewish people in this neighborhood. And over the last two years, we've really tried to get to know our Jewish neighbors. But Jewish evangelism, because of the partial hardening, is very, very difficult. It's very hard to find bridges to the gospel. But anyway, after the October 7th attack, I hung that Israeli flag in the window of our house. And it has generated a handful of conversations with our neighbors. Now, they know that I'm a Christian. I'm pretty sure they think I'm a weird Christian, which they might be true, that they might be accurate, because they know that I kind of loosely follow the holidays and stuff. I think they're constantly trying to figure out, who in the world is this guy? Um, 
But it's all an effort to try to, again, find a bridge to the gospel. So anyway, I hang this flag in the window of the house. And the other day we were out on a family walk and one of our Jewish neighbors drove down the street. He immediately saw us, pulled his car over to the side of the road. He rolled down the window and with tears in his eyes, he said, thank you. He said, every time we drive by your house, it for, it, for just a moment, takes away the horror of what's going on with our friends and our family members in Israel. And I said, praise the Lord. And uh, My hope, my prayer is that with enough of these interactions and conversations, these opportunities to share the gospel will become more and more frequent. Because although they're God's chosen people, Paul clearly affirms that here in Romans 11. They still need Jesus. And one day, I pray that they will accept him, which leads me to number three on our outline. Let's flip over to Ezekiel. Now again, you probably don't turn to Ezekiel all that much in your spare time. But in the last few weeks, this is why I want to talk about it. In the last few weeks, I've seen a number of pastors on YouTube talking about Ezekiel 38, and I've heard several of them make the claim or at least imply that what we're seeing in the Middle East is the fulfillment of, or possibly the fulfillment of, Ezekiel chapter 38. And so I want to talk about it for just a few minutes because I'm not so, so sure of that. Now, as you're flipping to Ezekiel chapter 38, let me set the stage for what's going on here. In Ezekiel chapter 37, there's an amazing prophecy that God gave in Ezekiel chapter 37 called the Valley of Dry Bones. It's a prophecy where God says one day the Jewish people are going to be regathered into the land. And I do believe, along with many others, that Ezekiel 37 was partially fulfilled when the Jewish people began to return to the land in 1947 and 1948. But I say partially fulfilled because in Ezekiel chapter 37, it's not just the physical regathering of the Jewish people to the land, but there's also in Ezekiel 38 a spiritual revival that takes place. And I don't think that's happened yet. Again, by and large, the Jewish people are atheistic much less believing in Jesus. And then in Ezekiel 38, there's another prophecy given about a terrible war called Gog and Magog. And this specifically is the chapter that a lot of YouTube preachers have been talking about. And they've been saying outright or implying that what we're seeing in the Middle East today is the fulfillment of Ezekiel 38. And I want you to hear me say, I'm not confident that's accurate. Now, in Ezekiel 38, again, there's this great end times battle being described. And before we get into the details, let me say from the outset that different scholars, all of whom could sign the doctrinal statement here at Grace... Different end-time scholars who teach at Dallas Seminary place the battle of Gog and Magog at different points on the end-times chart. No legitimate scholar 
Now, there are a lot of illegitimate scholars, but no legitimate scholar would say with absolute certainty that he knows beyond a shadow of a doubt when the Battle of Gog and Magog is going to take place. There's a ton of different views, and honestly, all of them have strengths and weaknesses. So if you flip to the backside of your outline, I've provided for you a great Dallas Seminary end times chart. A dispensational, pre-tribulational, pre-millennial end times chart. But different scholars, again, all of whom could sign our doctrinal statement, put the Battle of Gog and Magog at different points on this end times chart. Some, if you're familiar with the, end, uh, uh, the Left Behind series, the Left Behind series actually puts the Go- Battle of Gog and Magog before the rapture of the church, which I think is the most problematic view. Some, like Arnold Frutenbaum, if you're familiar with him, put it after the rapture of the church, but before the start of the tribulation. Others, like Dr. Pentecost, who once stood in this pulpit, puts it at the middle of the tribulation. Others put it at the return of Christ and equate it with the battle of Armageddon. Still others put it at the end of the millennium because in Revelation chapter 20, there's a battle at the end of the millennium, which John says is Gog and Magog. So, Unless you put Gog and Magog at the end of the millennium, wherever else you have to put it, you have to say, well, there's actually two battles of Gog and Magog, Gog and Magog 1 and Gog and Magog 2, kind of like World War I and World War II. Now, again, I know this is super technical, super complicated. We are going to go through Daniel and Revelation before too long. In fact, I've decided we're going to finish out Mark through the end of the year. We're then going to do our death and dying series because I know you're all dying to hear that one. (laughs) Then we're going to postpone Joshua and we're going to jump straight into Daniel and Revelation. We'll do Joshua after that. Um, Anyway, my point is this. When you look at the battle of Gog and Magog, let's look real quick at the first few verses of chapter 38. Verse 1 says, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your, set your face towards Gog, who's the leader, he's an individual, of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Mekesh, and Tubal, and prophesy against him, and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, prince of Rosh, Mekesh, and Tubal. And then skip down to verse 5. We also see Persia, Ethiopia, and Put mentioned. So when you take these ancient names and translate them into their modern equivalents, the nations that are mentioned in this particular prophecy are Russia, Iran, Turkey, Libya, and Sudan. And so it's super tempting When we read the headlines, and these are the nations being mentioned, it's super tempting for a lot of YouTube preachers to say, what we're seeing is Ezekiel 38. My caution is, let's not read headlines into the Bible We can't categorically say that this certainly is the fulfillment of Gog and Magog. Like I said last week, the rapture could happen any day. 
It could happen today. It could happen tomorrow. It could happen in a year. It could happen in 10 years. It could happen in 100 years. It could happen in 1,000 years. And so we can't know with certainty that what's happening today is even the precursor to the battle of Gog and Magog. Please don't fall into the trap of reading the newspaper headlines into the Bible. Don't put all your eggs into the basket of prophecy preachers on YouTube who claim that they've got this all figured out. And on the other hand, on the other hand, please don't live your life today as though this isn't important. Please live your life every day as though any day could be the last day. We should live our life every day as though any day could be the last day. So again, I know this is a ton of information. Perhaps you've never heard any of it before. If not, come back for our study in Daniel and Revelation. You'll get more details than you ever cared to know. The good news is that whatever happens, God is in control. The situation in the Middle East could calm down or it could intensify. But either way, God is in control. And as Christians, even though there are things we don't know, like when Gog and Magog exactly falls on the end times chart, as Christians, there are things we know with absolute certainty. We know that Jesus paid the penalty for our sin. We know that there is nothing, including war in the Middle East, that can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ. We know with absolute certainty that one day Jesus is coming back for his church and then will establish his kingdom, the millennium, and then a new heavens and a new earth. These things we know with certainty. These are things we believe, and these are things that should impact how we live in our world, our chaotic world today. And I want to give you the opportunity, if you don't know those things with certainty, If you don't know with certainty that Jesus laid down his life for you, for your forgiveness, I want to give you the opportunity here in this room or watching online to put your faith in him. To believe that he died and was resurrected for your sins and for for mine. And yes, one day he's coming again. So there on the backside of your outline, I've given you some application questions to consider, but your one thing for this week is to reread these passages from today's sermon, study them a little bit. If you've got a Ryrie study Bible, that's the one I'd recommend because I know there's some confusing verses. But I want you to ask yourself, what promises of God are here in the text? Where do you see God's faithfulness and mercy? And how do God's promises encourage you in your own walk with the Lord today? So again, all eyes are on Israel, and God's eyes are on Israel, and only God knows how the current conflict will turn out. But what do we, the people of God, what are we called to do in the meantime? We're called to pray. We're called to share the gospel, and we're called to live every day as though any day could be our last day. Would you pray with me? 
Father, we are grateful for the things that we can know with certainty. That Jesus died for us. That, Father, you love the Jewish people. Father, we know with certainty your desire for us to share the gospel. We know with certainty that one day Jesus is coming again. Father, help us to not be guilty of reading the headlines into the Bible, but also help us, Father, to not ignore what's going on in the world. Help us, most of all, to live each day as though any day could be our last day. Father, give us a heart for the lost, for Jew, Gentile, Palestinian. Give us opportunities to share with them the reason for the hope that's within us. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for what you have clearly revealed. And Father, most of all, thank you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.